All right. Well, the year was 2005. I just proposed to Kristen. Somehow she said yes. <laughs> Somehow she said yes. Uh, and then I got on a plane to fly across the world to do a study abroad trip in Europe. Uh, and so if you can just picture this scene, I, I had just given her this ring. I did an elaborate uh, proposal, and we, we feel closer than ever. And, and then I had to leave her and go on the other side of the world. And so as a way to remind her how much that I love her, I created a mixtape. A mixtape is this carefully crafted cassette tape, or in our day, a CD, uh, which if you don't know what that is, it's a, it's a round disc-looking thing that plays music like your iPhones. Um, okay, So I created this mixtape with one song for every day that I was going to be gone. So it included some, all these love songs, like, like almost the whole Moulin Rouge soundtrack. <laughs> Lots of songs from the Rushmore soundtrack. I guess lots of soundtracks. Uh, pretty much all of U2's songs. I think I had the Righteous Brothers. I had some Boys to Men, you know. <laughs> Although we go to the end. Okay, I know, I know, I know. My, my, okay, we'll, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> but the, the mixtape conveyed my love. Conveyed my love for her while I was gone, because I wanted her to know that. And so the Daniel mixtape is God telling us these real stories of what really happened, but he's giving us these select stories. He's not telling us everything, but he's telling us these stories as a mixtape to say, I want you to know this. Because this right here is something to remind you of my love for you. Now, you may be thinking as you read the book of Daniel, this does not sound like a love story. I, I get that. <laughs> but imagine you're in their shoes. Imagine you're an oppressed group of people living in a scary totalitarian government and you hear these stories of how God has and will deliver you. Then, then it becomes a mixtape. It's, it's a life raft in, in murky waters. It, it's, it's at this point that, that we're seeing that Israel is living in exile. Daniel, Daniel is this reminder that the king is still in control. And so today, as we look at Daniel 1, we're going to look at this passage in a couple different ways, and we're going to say it this way. We're going to look at captivity and conformity, and then we're going to look at conviction and compassion. So captivity and conformity and conviction and compassion. So captivity and conformity. The, the, the whole book of Daniel kicks off in probably one of the most understated ways. In verse 1, it says, In the third year of the reign, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's it. That's all it says about losing the fight against this new superpower, Babylon came and besieged. I mean, <laughs> there's so much packed into that word besieged. I mean, th that's almost as if saying like Hitler visited and took control of Poland, saying nothing of all the millions he exterminated. I mean, Israel has been sieged. They've overcome. They've been attacked. They've been plundered, mass murderer, children slaughtered. And then they... they the, 
the oppressors went in, destroyed their temple, the most holy of holies, they brought to rubble. And then they kidnapped the elite from Israel in the first exile and brought them back to Babylon. Now, Babylon was the greatest city in the world at the time. It, it was definitely the biggest city in the world at the time. It had so many temples. There was temples everywhere, but one of the key temples, their, their main idol or god was this god Marduk. This is where Israel finds themselves in the first exile. In roughly 605 BC, King Neb, as we'll affectionately call him, defeats Assyria and Egypt, and then he comes to take over Israel. Now, Neb, besides being a megalomaniac, he's also smart. He knows that you can't just all of a sudden gain support from this new country just by making everyone your captives. You have to somehow get those whom you've just oppressed, murdered, and demeaned to all of a sudden begin to love you. I mean, it's, it's, it's shocking, but it's also sickening that this, that this could happen, that the abused to love their abuser. But it's been proven effective over and over and over throughout history. This is what we call, I call the miseducation of the Israelite. I mean, this is grooming. This is brainwashing, and here's how it's done. It's four steps to do so. Step one, isolate. Abusers love to isolate you from family and friends so that you don't have anyone else to corroborate your story. Neb says, bring me some of the teenagers from the royal family, some of the, the nobility, those who are leaders. Bring them with me, not only leaders, but the attractive leaders. Give me all of those, and let's set them apart, and let's treat them differently away from everyone else. And so we're going to isolate them. Two, we're going to indoctrinate them. Verse 4, teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Give them alternative history. I mean, could you imagine? Could you imagine if, like, Pharaoh wrote the book of Exodus? How would he write that story? If Pharaoh was to recapture what happened in the book of Exodus, how would he have changed and told the story? Instead of Pharaoh sinfully enslaving all of these people in this people group and God saying, let my people go, right? The story would have been, you know, these people had it pretty good in my country. Like they ate well, we protected them. And then this radical traitor Moses got them all riled up and told them that was better in the desert. And see what they've got now. They're suffering I was just trying to do the best thing for these people. I mean, this is, how, this is what Neb is doing, right? Neb is trying to reframe what has happened to Israel. He is rewriting history to talk of Babylonian exceptionalism with patriotic education. Babylon the Great, the greatest nation ever. And these young teenagers need to see that their parents were just wrong. Yeah, you may have heard that we besieged you, but really, your government just really wasn't doing an effective job. They weren't going to allow you to excel in your life. They weren't going to give you your best lives now. Step three. Now we're going to force you to compromise. Verse five. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. And so the king forces or makes 
This new elite group eat everything that he ate and drink everything that he drank, which doesn't sound so bad, does it? I mean, you're going to get the choicest meats. You're going to get some good wine. Seems like a pretty good deal, right? But wouldn't it feel odd to you, though? Like, you just got kidnapped and brought into this country. And now we're saying, yeah, no, no, you're good. You're going to give you the, the best stuff. Like, wouldn't you feel odd eating it? Wouldn't you feel weird drinking it, going, is this okay? I feel something's wrong here. You were just whipped and stolen from home, and now you're treated like royalty. Doesn't this sound like what an abuser does? I'll give you this indulgence for this freedom, for complying to my demands. I'll give you the best meat. I'll give, I'll, but the only thing is, that meat was sacrificed to the god Marduk. It's, it's good stuff, but it, yeah, yeah, it was sacrificed to our idol. So you just got, you just got to eat that. You just kind of have to like ignore that part of the, the issue here. Because really, is it that bad? I mean, you can hear Lucifer calling out during this like, oh, eat it. You're like, stop talking to me, Lucifer. <laughs> but lastly, we're going to confuse you. So we, we, we isolate you. We indoctrinate you. We compromise you. And now we confuse you. We're going to give you new names. Yeah, I mean, your name is actually kind of hard to pronounce. Sorry. So instead of Danielle or Daniel, but you hear that L at the end, that, that, that is the, the Hebrew name for God. Daniel means God is my judge. Or Hananiah, you hear the end of that, Yah. That's where we get Yahweh, Yah. And Ananiah means the Lord is gracious. Mishael, who is, what is, God is. I like that one. Who is, what is, God is. And then the last one, Azariah, the Lord is a helper. And so if you look at all of their names, all of their names praise God. Just their names alone praise God. But instead of these names that were a part of who they are, they're reminded daily of their, of their role in, in God's kingdom. They get new names and they get the miseducation of reprogramming. And so Daniel is now Belteshazzar. Hananiah is called Shadrach. Mishael is called Meshach, and Azariah is called Abednego. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Tebed we go, right? You know those names? Not only are these names different, not only are they taking away from the name that was glorifying God, all of these names contained and invoked the Babylonian gods. So Belteshazzar, God of Babylon is the greatest. Shadrach, which we, we say a lot, we kind of ignore these three's Israel and Israelic names, we, we just keep with their, with their Babylonian name. So Shadrach means, I am very fearful of their idol. Meshach, I am of little account compared to this God. Abednego, servant of the shining one. I mean, it's all these names that are used to invoke praise to a false God. And so if your name got changed to something like that, I mean, how, what would you do if your name was, was now praising a false God? That, that would be weird to respond to. And so what's the point of all of this that they do that? What's the point? It's to miss or re-educate the Israelites. It's to obliterate all memory of Israel and Israel's God from their lips and the minds of these young men to instill a sense of dependence on Nebuchadnezzar for all of their good things in life. And so can you imagine what it must have been like to be exiled from your home to a foreign city, to be alone, to be scared? a long way from familiar surroundings. I mean, how would you cope in such a setting? Like, what truths would you cling to? 
Would you remain faithful to your, to your former identity? Or would you simply just assimilate to this new world that you're in? You've got to adjust. I know what we want to be true. I know what I want to be true of myself. But imagine you're in your sho- their shoes. Some of your friends are, have now just become leaders in this community, have come back from indoctrination and training, and they say, this is the way, right? This is the way. Man, the king isn't so bad. Yeah, he's a little brash, but, you know, he's clear on where he stands on issues. Like, what if you're one of those selected? Like, how do you decide what to do? If I speak up, I'll be put out, or I'll be seen as a troublemaker or a rebel rouser at best. If, if I speak up, I'll be kicked out. I'll be beaten. I'll be flogged. I will be murdered at worst. And so do you just take easy street? Go with the flow. I mean, you've got it made in the shade. You just got all the, all the, the king's goods. You just got to sacrifice some of your morals. Well, that's when we talk about compassion and conviction. How do you respond to the world's strategy of spiritual reprogramming that is going on right now? The world isn't as overt as Babylon with their captivity, but make no mistake, we are held prisoner by this world. We are in this world, and the world is trying to hold us prisoner with these subtle combinations of threats and promises of enforcement and encouragement. Babylon today is any government or any social structures within that government that we try to live in that will try to pry your allegiance away from the true king and his kingdom. And so when asked to laugh at a joke, what would you do? Do you conform or do you confront? When asked to give a perspective on an issue politically, do we bend to whatever the world or the government is demanding of you that day? Or do we stand resolved in our beliefs? Either way, either side, left or right, because we should not feel comfortable with either of these parties. Every day, every single day, you and I are invited to follow the world, to push against it or to stand with it. Every day, some aspect of God's kingdom is being assaulted by the kingdoms of this world. And typically, there are four ways that we respond to the world pushing against God's kingdom. There are about four ways that the the world has responded and, and will continue to do so. The first one is we assimilate to the world. We just give in. You want to be successful? Here's how you do it. You kind of have to give in on these issues. Like in the eyes of people around you, you give in. You, you, you eat the meat. Though it's sacrificed to, to pagan deities, it's not a big deal, right? Or in modern times, if, if I take that stance, I'll sound like I'm from the Stone Age. And so we give in because we're people pleasers and we want to accommodate people. We want to advance. Two, we escape the world. So instead of, instead of giving in, we just run from it. We just escape from it. We isolate ourselves from it. If this world and this organization, this place is messed up, I'm done. I'm leaving. I'm going to Canada. They seem to be okay over there. They seem to be always happy. I'm just, I'm leaving. This group, this organization, this seems so backwards. Nothing will ever change. I'm done. This could be the Quakers. Um, who create their own towns away from the world, but if you realize that the, the world is inside of our hearts, it follows us with us into those, those little mini communities, and sin follows us there. 
And so, but we, we, we do this all the time when we, when we just cancel people and we just say, no, we're done with you forever. We just run from them. Third, we fight the world. So we don't, we don't, we don't assimilate to it. We don't run from it. We're just going to fight it all out. Like we're going to consolidate all our political energy and save the country for Jesus. And this seems to be the usual application of the Daniel sermon series in, in, in a lot of churches. Babylon, the world are bad, so fight it, which is a part of this. But fight it with all your might and condemn it and maybe be a jerk to do so. But the last way that I want us to look at is that we see Daniel and his three friends is they engage the world by living with compassion and conviction. All right, they're not assimilating, they're not escaping, they're not engaged in a culture war. They're, they're doing everything to advance within Babylon. Do you see that? On the surface, they seem to be assimilating. They're probably called names by other Israelites. But notice what Daniel bends to and what he stands firm on. He goes into their reprogramming program. He didn't say, okay, how can we make this miserable for the Babylonians? He didn't flee. He didn't try a hostile takeover. He took their name. He took the name. He gets their education. He learned the language. Later, it's, we, we, we hear that he's able to interpret the dreams 10 times better than all of the Babylonian prophets. Because he went into their education, he committed himself within it. He is where God has placed him. He committed to where the Lord had placed him. And I think this is the absolute key to understanding the whole book of Daniel. God has placed Daniel exactly where he wants him to be. In captivity. In the king's palace. God has Daniel exactly where he wants him to be. I mean, look at God showing off. Go back to verses 1 and 2. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That is what the, the evil foreign power did. And yet, in verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Oh, yes, Neb besieged Jerusalem. But verse 2, The Lord gave Israel into his hands. God gave them over to Babylon. Now, the world can't do nothing without, the, without God allowing it to happen. <laughs> Say that again, God gave them over to Babylon. God has Babylon right where he wants them. And he has Daniel right where he wants him. Do you know God has placed you in your job for a reason? That God has you where you, he wants you to be for a reason? God has placed you in your family for a reason? Are you committed to where the Lord has placed you? It is not by accident you're there. Whether that's in your job as a student, whether that's in your job in the world, whether that's in your particular state of life, you're just like, I'm in this state of life. God has placed you there. He did. And instead of always condemning the world and creating our own little Christian enclaves and saying, you know what, the world's bad, we're going we're to create only Christian music. The world's bad, we're going to create Christian movies. I think what would be better is we say that God has placed us in these systems to work within the systems and just create better music. Just create better movies. Just tell good stories. We need Christians in all these realms. We need Christians in the legal realm fighting for true justice. Hallelujah. We need Christians in, in all these different places. We need them politically. I mean, we can talk about this right now, right? We live in a government where every voice matters, and you can use that this week and vote, right? You can early vote this week. 
It's beautiful because every place matters. There's a guy named Abraham Kuyper. He's got this famous quote. He says, there is not one square inch of the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That everything is God's. It's God's anyways. There is no randomness. God is in control. Amen. I'm assuming you said amen. (laughs) Daniel and these men even took their new names, worked within the system. And so how can you reflect God where you're at? I mean, this this famous passage that you may have heard before and seen on t-shirts in Jeremiah. Jeremiah was this contemporary of Daniel. And he wrote about in the same times as this. In Jeremiah 29, he says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons Give your daughters into marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I mean, does that not change that verse just a little bit for us? To seek the welfare of that foreign city that you were kidnapped into? Seek the welfare of that, plant gardens and build houses in that? I mean, this is radical. (laughs) This is so countercultural because it's just so gracious. And again, the temptation is to either give in wholly or retreat or, or fight the world. But what if we lived with compassion towards the world and saw the common grace that is that each of us has and with conviction? That conviction or resolve of being of being true to who you really are comes out when they offer Daniel the king's food. And Daniel gives in on everything, right? He gives in on the name change, the education, but not the meat. Because it would have made him unclean. He would have defiled himself. And so at what point do you draw the line? Do you have a line? There are times when we need to say no. There are times when we need to push against the status quo that I'm resolved to follow Christ and justice takes sides. Maybe you run your own company. I mean, how much easier would it be if you didn't have to have Christian values at times and just not be honest about your taxes? Maybe maybe you don't have to pay your employees as well. Maybe you're a college student and, and that sexual temptation is just too strong. Like, where do you draw the line? Is there a line? But also notice that not just that Daniel stands firm on the line, but notice how he does it. Daniel is careful. In verse 8, he says, He asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuchs. And so Daniel wasn't making a culture war. He didn't want to defile himself. I mean, do you see even the compassion in his conviction? Like, he doesn't want this eunuch to be killed for just doing his job. Nor does Daniel want to defile himself. His conviction is even full of love. I mean, are are we loving when we even take stands? Sometimes I think Christians will only know for what we stand against and not what we're for. May we be known for our love. Marked by our compassion, even when we take stands. And this is... This little underling is worried he's going to get in trouble with King Neb, but God performs a miracle. And so Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, they only eat vegetables for 10 days. 
and they get fatter. This is the reason we don't only eat vegetables in our house. I'm worried about my weight. <laughs> no, sadly, this is a work of God. This is a, this is a miracle that they get fatter after only eating vegetables all the time, and they are healthier in the king's eyes. This was a work of the Lord. God has not left Daniel even in Babylon. I mean, we need to see that, that God has not left Daniel in exile, and he has not left you when you are in exile. Make no mistake, we are all living in exile, every single one of us. We're all immigrants in this land. Our real home is in heaven above, and that the chapter begins and ends with some of the most serious understatements in the book. The, at the beginning, it says, they came and besieged. And at the very end, it says in verse 21, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Which could just go over your head if you don't look at, at what's going on there. Okay, so Daniel outlasts King Nebuchadnezzar. Cool. But not only does he outlast King Nebuchadnezzar or the next king, Daniel outlasts the whole Babylonian empire. He, king Cyrus comes four kings after Neb died. And he's a king of a different empire. And so the first year of Cyrus was the year which the decree was issued that they were enabled the Jews to get, return back to home. And some 70 years after that, when Daniel and his friends were taken to exile. And so what this verse is packing in right here, Babylonians come and go. Persians come and go. Romans come and go. And one day, America will come and go. But we have a king who has come, and he will never go. We have a king who, who is king forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. He is the king over all kings and over all kingdoms. We will live beyond these kingdoms. And our struggle today is how to maintain our dual identity Babylonian, its rule, its law was temporary. The kingdoms of this world are fleeting. Don't bow down to the king of this earth when the everlasting king could do far worse. Are we citizens of this kingdom and the world that's right here or the world to come? The challenge we have before us is learning to breathe in both worlds. We can't be so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good and we can't be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. Side note, I think if you're really earthly minded, you're heavenly good. If you're really heavenly minded, you're earthly good. <laughs> but the way that we do this is by investing in our cities and loving them deeply, but also by celebrating our heavenly, our heavenly realm here, celebrating our heavenly citizenship. It, I mean, it's this well-observed phenomenon that when exiles are away from their home, they are profoundly more patriotic than they were if they had lived in their home. When they're gone away from the mother country, they're far more patriotic. So that's why you see like in St. Patrick's Day, you know, there, there are a lot more people celebrating St. Patrick's Day in Boston than there are in Dublin. I got, I, this makes me think of when I was study, when I was doing my study abroad in Europe, away from Kristen, pining away, you know, I, I got homesick. And even though it was, it was this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that to, just to be abroad, to see this new, new realm, this new place, I was missing Texas. I missed home. And I remember going into a restaurant in Paris that said Texas-style barbecue, and I was like, I'm going there. <laughs> in Paris, Texas. Wait, not Paris, Texas. There is that. Paris, France. And while I was there, I walk in, and there's a giant Texas flag 
And I was like, oh, I miss it so much. I don't even ever missed home that much. I just was so overwhelmed. I was like, this barbecue is terrible, <laughs> but I love this restaurant <laughs> because it reminded me of home. I mean, <laughs> exiles desire and need opportunities to celebrate and preserve their true identity. And so as citizens of heaven, we need to take every opportunity to gather with our fellow exiles so that we can remind one another of home. And that's what church is, is we're just fellow exiles gathering together, reminding one another of our true home, telling stories of, the, of our Savior, of our Rescuer. We gather together to do this, to tell stories of the one who was tempted with everything that the world had to offer, all the riches, all the power, and didn't cave into the world. He had, he had all the riches, all the power, and didn't cave into it. We have a king who will outlast every other king who said all authority, all of it, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And this king didn't use that power to abuse you. This king let the powers of the world abuse him out of his great love for you. Hear this mixtape of love. Hear this immense amount of care he has. Just as God didn't leave Daniel and Babylon alone, he didn't leave you and me when he was bleeding out on the cross. Jesus is the better Daniel. While Daniel's life is an example to follow, Christ's life actually secured the victory. Daniel may show us how we can live as exiles, but Christ was exiled on our behalf. Daniel acts with compassion, but Christ is compassion. And it's out of his resolve and his conviction to ransom his children that Christ never gives up on us. And so do we live for this world or the next? Yes. Yes. Today, let's share stories of the homeland and remember our true home, even while we live as exiles here on earth. Let's pray.